Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Ebola is spreading out of control in West Africa. I speak today with Gregory Hartle of the World Health Organization, who explains why this particular outbreak is so difficult to contain. At time of recording, there have been over 600 deaths attributed to Ebola, and that number is only increasing. Now, the thing about Ebola is that it's not terribly infectious. It's not as infectious as, say, a flu virus, but it's really deadly. It kills over 60% of the people who are infected, sometimes as high as 90% of all people infected. So if you are infected, there is a very good chance you will die. So this is part of the reason why it's so frightening and why there is such deep concern that the outbreak is not yet under control, for reasons that Gregory Hartle of the World Health Organization will explain. Here he is, Gregory Hartle of the WHO. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The biggest difference with this one is the number of foci that we're having to deal with. And it's in three different countries. So we have at least, let's say, seven or eight uh, centers of transmission spread across three different countries. So it's a big geographical area. It's different countries. And um, for each one of the foci, you have to recreate an entire team. So it involves a lot of people who would be necessary in order to contain the outbreak. You would need uh, epidemiologists, uh, clinical care specialists, infection control specialists, lab people, uh, social mobilization, what we mean, community, community mobilization specialists, whole range of functions and replicated across at least eight different sites, if not more. So it's a, a, a huge undertaking in terms of uh, coordination um, and cost and so, resources. So it's really, it's, it's the geographical spread of this uh, outbreak that makes it particularly difficult. Yes, it's the geographical spread, and certainly one other consideration might be that the, we've also seen city uh, cases in major cities, um, whereas normally before cases have occurred primarily or overwhelmingly in rural areas. Um, and in rural areas, it makes the numbers of contacts lesser and easier to um, follow. So being in cities it does make it more complicated. But the measures that are needed in order to uh, combat the outbreak are the same as in previous outbreaks. It's just that this has been a lot more um, 
complex because of the number of different areas where we're seeing transmission. Um, so can you uh, walk me through what those measures are? Like, for example, say, uh, you know, there is word of a potential infection in a city like Conakry, Guinea. Uh, how yeah. does the WHO, how does the, the, the people on the ground respond to that uh, suspected case? A person who is suspected of Ebola, because they're already suspecting Ebola, means that when that person gets into the clinic, the healthcare workers would be wearing proper protective equipment in order to prevent transmission of the virus. Then, if the person is found to be positive for Ebola virus, that person would be put in an um, isolation ward and would be treated basically with what we call supportive therapy, which means keeping the person hydrated and uh, having the correct nutrients like electrolytes given to the person. Because there is no medicine and there's no vaccine, uh, the only thing we can do is really offer supportive treatment to keep the body functioning, uh, quote-unquote, properly. And the earlier a person comes in for this kind of treatment, the better their chances are for survival. So... Early treatment is key. Separation from other patients is key. And doctors uh, doing um, this work with proper protective equipment, doctors, nurses, and other health staff doing this work with proper protective equipment is also key. So what do you also need apart from that? You need um, a lab that can quickly and correctly diagnose uh, a, a virus as actually being Ebola, and you need, very importantly, in the community, uh, epidemiologists to go out and trace contacts and make sure that these contacts are followed up for 21 days, and that uh, also in the community, you need people who can communicate effectively with people in the community so that they understand the risks and they understand that... Um, certain actions they might undertake put both themselves and their family and their friends at much greater risk of dying. Um, so you've sort of described how it's supposed to work, but I take it there have been some breakdowns in, in that process for various reasons. Uh, my understanding is that, uh, for example, there's like this almost this fear of health workers in some communities uh, that's undermining, uh, you know, people sort of checking themselves into hospitals. Is that uh, is that something you've experienced or, or people you speak with have experienced? Yeah, and unfortunately, this, this kind of superstition, as we can call it, or rumors or incorrect information that leads to the wrong actions on the part of local communities is something that's not unique. Again, it's not unique to this outbreak. It happens almost all the time. And um, it happens just because, well, people have certain attitudes to others who come in from the outside, who are strangers, who might be dressed um, in... uh in very strange outfits, like protective equipment that might be uh, white and not black. And um, certainly there are, could be other reasons, too, for this uh, reticence to deal with foreigner, uh, with, with outsiders. And it's not even necessarily outsiders, but people often then just uh, don't believe in medicine per se. They believe also in... Uh, uh, local traditional kinds of healers and remedies. And what also is important to know is that sometimes when a um, 
a person goes into a health facility and then dies, the family believes that these strange people have taken their loved ones away from them just to kill them. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of barriers uh, and that need to be overcome, and consequently that means a lot of um, uh, dialogue with the community. And it, there, some of the barriers, I take it, also uh, are on the part of the health system themselves. Like uh, I read this report the other day that um, you know a hospital on the outskirts of Monrovia is run out of, of beds in their isolation unit. That you know health systems have not had to deal with this before because again, this is sort of I think unique. To, uh, this was the first time an outbreak occurred in this region. Um, yes. And so uh, I guess how much are is sort of the strain put on health systems? Uh, contributing to the sort of unrelenting pace of new infections? Um, certainly, the strain on health systems is a, a, a factor, and it's a factor because there aren't enough doctors or uh, nurses to give proper care. But other factors are also very important in terms of the beliefs or attitudes of the community in general to healthcare. It's a whole combination of, of factors which is preventing um, this from having been brought under control already. Um, so I wanted to get like uh, just a little bit uh, wonky uh, for you know listeners out there who may not be aware. After the 2003 SARS outbreak, the World Health Organization and the international community created a new set of standards to try to stem infectious outbreaks. Uh, these standards are called the International Health Regulations. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that they worked very well uh, in combating the swine flu H1N1 epidemic in 2009 to, to, to contain that, to you know, prevent that from being a terrible global pandemic. Uh, but I'm wondering if the um, Ebola outbreak is showing certain strains or gaps in the international health regulations, if they're you know, showing places perhaps that need reform or need places for improvement. The international health regulations is all about, on the one hand, uh, protecting international health, but also protecting international travel and trade. And you do this through uh, rapid exchange of information and the um, rapid response as fast as possible. So in those um, contexts, the IHR have functioned as they should have. I mean, we were first informed of the um, the outbreak extremely early on. We responded. We had people in country from quite an early stage. Um, again, it's much more so the IHR work at a micro, uh, macro level, and what we're seeing here is that obstacles at a much more micro level are needing to be overcome in order to uh, get an end to this outbreak. I think it's really that what you need to look at. We need, we know, we certainly know what's happening. That's the purpose of the IHR. Um, and we know what needs to be done. We know that from public health experience of uh, Ebola outbreaks. Now what we're doing is really calling on the international community to uh, donate, commit, send more doctors, more nurses, more uh, physicians' assistants, more healthcare workers of all types, and uh, more supplies, and even money for certain things. Because let's say these countries are so poor, for example, that uh, 
if uh, a lot of times the doctors and nurses might not be getting paid, and if they don't get paid, and especially under these conditions, there might be a reticence to show up for work. Also, we need to think about things like, and we don't know this for a fact, and this needs to be looked into, are um, services charged for? Do you, if you come into a clinic like this, are you going to be charged? If you are, that might make you more reticent to go out and seek help. So if we can be, if we were able to say to anyone and everyone in these countries, Ebola treatment is free of charge, um, that treatment would still have to be paid for, but at least then uh, the person wouldn't be worrying about having catastrophic out-of-pocket expenses. And has the WHO made a request along these lines uh, yet? Well, yes, certainly we have been talking with donors uh, since the beginning, and there have been donations. We have a list of many different uh, outside um, organizations that have worked with us in this regard. Um, What is needed, though, is more because this outbreak is expanding. So we need international solidarity and support from everyone uh, to uh, successfully stop this outbreak. And there have been any number of uh, support already having come from organizations within the U.S., and that's fantastic. And they've come from other places, too. It's just we need more because this thing is so big. Um, I think the sooner we get more people on the ground, the, uh, the, the sooner we can bring this under control. Uh, Well, Gregory, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, I do hope that the international community heeds the World Health Organization's call and sends rapidly more resources to fight the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, And if you uh, appreciate this conversation, if you like these kind of conversations about global issues, please subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes. And if you like longer conversations with foreign policy luminaries and thought leaders, I got that too. So subscribe and we'll see you next time. Bye.